Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 25, beginning in verse 24 through the end of the chapter. Salvation is free, but it is not easy. It requires attention and care, striving and sacrifice. One of the first gifts of God's grace in the the heart is to convince that heart that all the trouble is worth it. The world will tell you that your house, your car, your career, your friends, your family, or your health, or, and you put in the blank, are worth all of your devotion. And that your faith is only worth the bare minimum of attention and effort. The Bible teaches the very opposite. Nothing in all the world is worthy of your devotion as much as God's great and very precious promises to you. Nothing in all of this world compares to the wonder of eternal life. Last week we explored God's sovereign election over, of Jacob over Esau. Before they had made any choices, good or evil, God began to have mercy upon Jacob while passing over Esau. But the truth of God's sovereign election does not mean that Jacob can be saved apart from an earnest faith. Or, and also it does not mean that Esau is condemned even though he has faith. In salvation, God takes evil men and makes them good. But in the non-elect, God never takes a good man and makes them evil. God only has to leave us to ourselves and we will quite naturally go down the road of hating God and loving self. What we will see not only in today's passage, but in the rest of Esau's life, we will see him demonstrate this very truth. Even though he was born into the covenant that God had made with Abraham and was the rightful heir of those promises, he could care less. Jacob will care about the promised inheritance. Esau will not. And the example of Esau is a warning to every one of us. So let's read the text today, beginning in verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, 
a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Genesis was written to Israelites. Now, Israelites, if you don't know the story, Israelites are descendants of Jacob. His name was changed to Israel, so it's written to the sons of Jacob. One of its purposes, one of its purposes for for the book of Genesis is to explain how very precious it is to be an Israelite. It is given to them partly to help them cherish the inheritance that is theirs. Second Samuel, you don't have to turn there, but listen to the wording of Second Samuel 7, 23 and 24. Who is like your people Israel? Is there any other people in all the world that is so precious as us? The one nation on earth whom God went out to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. To be born as an Israelite was an incredible privilege. God had selected them out of all the peoples of the earth to be a people for himself. He didn't choose them because they were better than other people. They weren't chosen because they were elite in themselves, but only because of his sovereign mercy. But every Israelite had the privilege of being able to call Yahweh their God. They also knew that they were the rightful heirs of the promises that God had given to Abraham. These privileges were theirs because they were born into this covenant relationship. Circumcision was a sign to them and a seal of these promises. But having the external sign does does not negate the need for every Israelite to pursue after those promises in a life of faith and devotion. 
Romans 4, speaking of this very thing, says this. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that would be the Gentiles, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also, and this is the key, walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had even before he was circumcised. You see, we are true children of Abraham today if we walk in the faith that Abraham walked. You see, you will not live a life of faith. You will not put forth the effort to pursue the promises of God if you are not first convinced that the prize at the end of that faith is worth it. When God enters into a relationship with Abraham, it had consequences in the present. God takes care of him. God watches over him. God God blesses him in many temporal ways in in this world. We're even told at the end of his life that he had a full life. But Abraham died having not received the promised blessing. Abraham left his home, he left family, believing that God had something better for him. And yet he died not yet having experienced that better. But instead of being bitter, instead of being angry at God that he didn't get all the blessings that he was first promised... Even in his dying days, he continues to believe in those promises and cling to them. Knowing full well that he will not really enjoy them until the other side of the grave. Now this is all background, but this is all very important for us. You see, because at the, at the, unless this occurs in Abraham's life, we might think that salvation is for this life primarily. You see, Abraham tells each one of us that we are all faced with a dilemma. And this dilemma is lifelong. Will you really seek the eternal prize of eternal life, or will you live only for the comforts and pleasures of this present life? You see, Jacob and Esau grew up as heirs of these covenant promises, these eternal promises. Isaac and Rebekah had received these promises before them, and now they belong to Jacob and Esau. They do not become heirs because of any choice of theirs. They are heirs by right of birth in the covenant. That's what it means, birthright. But as those living in covenant relationship with God, they do have to make a choice. And it is a lifelong choice. It is not a choice of, do I want into the covenant? It is a choice of saying, I care and I am thankful and I consider precious that I am in the covenant. What is more... 
the choices of Jacob and Esau will affect their posterity after them. The children of Jacob will remain in the covenant. The children of Esau will be out of the covenant. If you are a baptized member of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in the covenant. Incredible promises have been given to you. But the question does remain whether or not you will cherish those promises. Will you engage a lifelong struggle of faith so that you will endure in the faith, as Ryan told us this morning, so that you will in the end receive the prize? You see, God has given us Jacob and Esau to help us understand that there are two very different paths that you can take, even to those of you who are in the church. You can either follow the path of Jacob or you can follow the path of Esau. You have that choice that you have to make. Let's look now at the text itself and see how this works out in their lives. In verses 24 to 26, we see that at birth, Esau was red and hairy. Now, those might not be attributes that you're very excited about. But in the text of their time, that was a good thing. They are meant to give you a positive impression of Esau. David is described in the same way, only there they call him ruddy. Same Hebrew word. Esau's hairiness may sound a bit odd to us, but it will become important as the story comes along. You understand later on that's going to be important as well. The only thing that we're told about Jacob is that he was holding Esau's heel. In fact, the word Jacob does mean clutches the heel. And all that we can discern from this is that Jacob is grasping at what rightly belongs to Esau. He wants Esau's place. That's all we're given at their birth. Verse 27, Moses skips over the childhood years. We're just told that they are grown up. Now I want to speak to the kids here a little bit and to parents. There are not a whole lot of places in Scripture that directly talk about the childhood years. So it's easy to think that those years are not important. But I will tell you this, you are either learning in your childhood years to be a man like Jacob, a man of faith, or you're learning to despise your birthright. So even though that those childhood years were skipped over in the text, and a lot of times we don't see that, your childhood years are there to prepare you for adulthood, either a life of faith or a life of lack of faith. And so they're very, very important years. And I just want to encourage you to even now as young people to think about your own heart. Are you cherishing the promises that God has given to you even now? Because it's very important. And and as you get older, it'll become more and more clear whether you want to give those up or not. As kids, you have to kind of pursue the things of God because your parents bring you to church and those kind of things. But there'll come a day when no one will force you 
and you will have to make these same choices. That's a tangent, but it's an important one for you guys to know. Esau has become a skillful hunter and a hard worker. I think this is very important as well. These are qualities that would have been coveted in a young man, especially in the eyes of a father. Put it in our day, Esau looks like he is a, as a, is a man who is destined to succeed. You like that, right? Parents like it when their kids get a nice job or they graduate from school or they do all the... We love that. Things about life. We want that to happen. Okay? And so the father, Isaac, is pleased with Esau because he is the man that puts forth all the qualities that he, the father, really appreciates. But they are earthly qualities. And even as we think of Esau being described as a skillful hunter, if you remember the rest of Genesis that we've already studied, which I don't expect you to, but there was another man who was called a mighty hunter, and his name was Nimrod. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, but he was not godly. And so one asks, you start having this question, oh, he looks good on the outside, but is he really godly? Nothing wrong with being a hunter. It's just not a description of godly character. On the other hand, we're told that Jacob was a quiet man. It's an interesting translation. What exactly does this mean? Is it a positive word or is it a negative word? Some translations put in plain or peaceful. But do you know what the Hebrew word is? The Hebrew word is blameless. The Hebrew word is tom. This is the word that was used to describe Job. Job was a blameless man. Now the problem with this, and the reason why most translators don't translate it blameless, is that Jacob is a scoundrel. How can you be speaking of this man and call him blameless when he's clearly not blameless? And so we have two options that I understand, and I I have my opinion, but... One, you could actually go with the kind of the broader, kind of tangential meaning of quiet. He was a quiet man. Or you can actually say, oh, no, it means blameless, but I can't figure out why Moses would put blameless in this passage. I kind of like the second one myself. It is clear that we are not to be looking at Jacob in this story as a model of ethical, you know, inspiration. But it is also true that we have just been told that Jacob is God's choice. And it is possible that God is actually giving us his interpretation of Jacob based on his election. I don't know. But it is an interesting fact, and you guys can study it more and come back with me on that if you want. That's all we're told about Jacob. Verse 28, we're also told about how mom and dad feel about them. Isaac loved Esau. That means he favors Esau. Esau was his favorite. 
And we're told why. Because Esau gave him choice game to eat? Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a good steak. I like steak. There's nothing wrong with appreciating the skills of Esau. But as a reader, you are supposed to say, isn't that rather shallow? I favor this son because he does something in the world's eyes that's wonderful? I hope we parents learn from this. That's not the way we're supposed to value our children. What is more, Isaac must know, I know there's some people that doubt this, but I think it's, it's got to be true, that Rebecca has communicated to Isaac God's prophetic statement. And so we see in the heart of Isaac a a kind of resisting God's attitude for what he likes. Now, we're not supposed to see Isaac as a complete unbeliever in the story. We're not supposed to see him as, as like outside of the covenant. In fact, just a few chapters ago, he's like the foreshadow of Christ, looked at in this ideal way. He's offered up on the altar and all this kind of stuff. But we are supposed to learn from this kind of attitude in Isaac that he was not the Messiah. It's hard for us to even think in those terms because we know the Messiah is going to come many years later. But if you were in that time, living in time with them, with this new child, you think, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? And with Isaac, you get lifted all your hopes up, and then you go, hmm. He's kind of a dud. Contrast that with Rebecca. We're not told why she loves Jacob. Could be just because he's lived around the tents and helped her cook and did things at home. But I think there's a hint as well. She knows the promise. Is she possibly saying, this is the one that God has chosen? Hard to say. There's not a whole lot we can say to commemorate Rebecca. She also is kind of shysty as the story plays itself out. But, but the fact of the matter is, she at least is on the right side here. Verse 29, we come to the defining moment in Esau's life. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Now the stew that Jacob is making is probably a red lentil stew. And Edom just means red stuff. And all of Esau's descendants are, are the Edomites and they get, they're the red stuff people. And I think his stew is probably pretty tasty. But it was not nearly as good as the juicy steaks that Esau normally provided. Ironically in the story, and I think this is under God's providential hand, Esau is not able to find game. He goes out hunting, comes back empty and hungry. He says that he is exhausted, famished. I'm telling you, this is a bit of an overstatement. Esau is able to engage in some pretty 
significant conversation. He is not a guy that's passed out on the road because he's so famished he, he can't even fainted. And Jacob just finds him. He's making an, an overstatement. I'm famished. I'm dying here. Esau values his full stomach. That's what matters to him. At this point, we're a little bit surprised, are we not? Verse 31, Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Now, when it comes to helping someone in the need, if they're your brother, I mean, don't you think Jacob should have said, sure, brother, glad to help. After how many times you have fed the family with your fine game, right? Instead, Jacob is devious and conniving. There's nothing kind or gracious in his response. In fact, the only redeeming quality that we can say about Jacob at this point is that he cares about that birthright. That is the only thing we can say good about him. The blessing of Abraham mattered to him. Now, I need to talk to you a little bit about birthright here because I think sometimes we get confused with how it functioned later in Israel. So, you know, Jacob has kids. He's got 12 kids. And every time there was a, the firstborn, he would get a double portion of the inheritance and the rest of the kids would get a, a lesser portion. They, they'd work out their single portions. But I don't think that's what's going on in the mind of Jacob or of Esau at this point. I think what we should see here is more of what has occurred immediately previous to this. So in the life of Isaac, remember, Abraham sends all of his other kids away. Ishmael, the other sons of Keturah, he sends them all away and gives all of his inheritance to Isaac. That's what I think is going on in the mind here. So what we're seeing is that that uh, Jacob is saying, I want that inheritance. And Esau's saying, I, I, could, I could care less. You can have it. Now, Jacob's attitude reminds me of Scarlett O'Hara. Most of you young people don't even know who Scarlett O'Hara is. It's an old book by Margaret Mitchell called Gone with the Wind. She is after the Civil War. She's lost everything, terrible. Atlanta's burning, her plantation is in ruins, and she's like starving. She pulls a turnip out of the ground, and the turnip is there, and she's just hungry and starving. And this is what she says. As God is my witness, as God is my witness, they are not going to lick me. I am going to live through this, and when it's all over, I'll never be hungry again. No, nor any of my folk, if I have to lie, steal, Cheat or kill, as God is my witness, I will never be hungry again. Now, if you know anything about the rest of the story, she does a lot of shady stuff to make sure that she's never hungry again. But she keeps her promise. And so even while you're losing respect for her in many ways, you are also going, that woman is determined. I think you even admire her. Now, the blessing of God is not gained by lying, stealing, cheating, and killing. 
It is only, cling, it is only uh, experienced through clinging to the promise of Christ. God's going to teach Jacob that later on. For now, it is enough that he has this dogged determination, I want that birthright. And his attitude is in direct contrast with Esau's. Look at verse 32. Esau says, I'm about to die. Of course, that is another hyperbole. Of what use is a birthright to me? This is the focal point of this passage. What is not hyperbole is how little Esau cares about his birthright. When push comes to shove, it is more important to him that his stomach is full than that he has the promises of God. And I'm telling you, this is the test that God will bring on every person who is in the covenant of God. It's not just, oh, some people deal with this. Every one of us will have to be faced with this decision. Are the promises of God more valuable to you than all the treasures of this world? Do you follow Christ only so much as he makes your life in this world better? Are you bitter because he hasn't made your life as good as you want it to be now? You see, Esau's birthright appeared to him to be useless. You know, I start thinking of Jesus talking about the wedding feast. And he invites people to the wedding feast. And they say things like, oh, but I'd like to come, but I've married a wife. I've bought me a cow. I got things to do here and now. More pressing things. I will pursue eternal life after I have squeezed out of this life all that I can. See, it's not wrong for Esau to want a pot of stew. It's not even wrong for Esau to offer good things to Jacob for that stew. But to carelessly throw away his birthright? Jacob says, swear to me now. You see, Jacob's not playing games. He knows that later on when, when Esau thinks things through a bit, he may regret his decision. So he wants an oath. He wants this in writing. I mean, this is humorous if it weren't so serious. Think about this. The blessing that God gave Abraham was basically the inheritance of the entire new heavens, new earth. It is the entire world will be blessed in you, Abraham. That's what Esau is saying. Ah, just give me the stew. That's more important. You cannot earn salvation. They are given to you freely. But being given to you this eternal salvation, you are called to value it. Jesus says if you care about this, you'll be willing to go and sell, or sell, or go purchase a field, 
dig a hole, put the treasure in that field so it'll be yours for eternal life. You see, what happens in the church is we'll say we care about God's salvation, but our lives tell a different story. At least Esau is honest, right? At least Esau says, what use is it to me? He openly says it. We say, oh yeah, I love Jesus, I love my salvation, and then we just go on living as if he never came. Verse 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. His life, life is on his way. And then God throws the hammer down. This is the narrator's judgment. It is God's judgment. Esau despised his birthright. Literally, it reads, Esau despised the birthright. You see, because we're not just talking about his personal rights as firstborn. We're talking about that he could care less about the promises given to Abraham that were rightfully his. When you despise something, you look down upon it, you consider it to be worthless. And if you're looking at this story just in mere ethics, Jacob loses. Esau comes out as the victim. But if you're looking at this story in terms of faith in the promises and concern for the inheritance, Esau is the one who loses. And you here sitting today are supposed to be going, I do not want to be like Esau. Countless people in this world are abandoning their faith. Young adults especially in here. Teenagers on the verge of going into adulthood. 15 to 25. You realize so many who are in the church are abandoning their faith. They care less about what has been given to them. Oh, they have excuses. There's hypocrites in the church. The Bible's full of contradictions. The ethical standard of the Bible is antiquated. And you just list of them. But in the end, it comes down to this one fact. They have found that salvation that is rightfully theirs is useless to them and can be cast away. You see, when you despise your inheritance, you're not just despising eternal life. You are despising Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 says this, He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. If you don't care about your salvation, then you don't care about Christ. You see, Esau had other options. I mean, could he not, as a rightful heir of the covenant Lord, just cried out, Lord, help me, I'm dying here. Could he not have gone to his parents? His parents aren't starving. 
Could he not have given some other counteroffer? I'll give you the next five deer that I bring home. They're all yours. But I am not giving up my birthright. You see, Esau looks at the exchange, and this is very important. Esau thinks he's won. He thinks he's got the better deal. Now, Ryan already brought up the illustration of sports, and so I'll continue that. There was a time when I prized a good pair of high-top basketball sneakers. I treasured them. I took care of them. If you come by my house now, you'll see a couple pairs sitting in the carport, mud all over them, dirty. They're there because I may at some point still need them. But I play basketball so infrequently now that they're not really that valuable. Give me a good pot of stew, I might give you my sneakers. <laughs> this is how he's treating the gospel. Like an old pair of sneakers with no use. Jacob is to be your example, not in his poor ethics, not in his swindling but he is to be your model in someone who cares about the blessing. Jesus says, those who seek me will find me if they seek me with all their heart. That's Jacob here. So who best describes you? Jacob or Esau? Despising your birthright is not simply struggling with sin. Jacob will struggle with sin throughout his whole life. Here's the difference between someone who is despising their birthright and someone who is not. The person who is despising their birthright will treat their struggle with sin as if it doesn't matter. Ah, if I overcome sin, great. If I don't, who cares? You can't be careless in your sin. We're going to, communion is going to be for sinners here. You have fallen short. You have not loved your God the way you, you have promised to do so. It is for you, this table. But it is not for the person who says, ah, yeah, whatever. That is not, this table is not for you, if that's your attitude. Even the most devout person in this room struggles to keep God at the forefront of all their decisions. Despising your birthright is giving up the struggle to actually pursue God and love Him. You see, despising your birthright is pursuing God only so much as it benefits your life here and now. Despising your birthright is saying, and this is speaking to the choir here, is basically saying, I would rather, I don't know, go for a hike, sleep long in bed, do all these other things, than actually worship God. But I'm going to tell you the most important way that we despise our birthright. And that is we think little of Jesus Christ. 
I have a friend from high school. His name's Steve Perry. Probably spoken about him before. I don't talk to him too much now. But we do maintain our friendship, and occasionally we'll talk for an hour or so on the, on the phone. But I will always cherish Steve. Always. Why? Because when I was lost in my sin, Steve reached out to me. And he pointed me to Christ. God used Steve to bring me to Jesus. And for that reason, I will always be thankful to Steve. And if I am thankful for the one who pointed me to Christ, should not my entire life be filled with a continual striving to actually give my devotion and my gratitude to the one who has actually purchased my salvation? That's what this is all about. We're a pitiful flock. I mean, I, I love you guys. You're great. We're, we're not like, you know, you're going to go, oh, man, those guys at faith, they are the most zealous. They are the most this. They are the most that. You know, we're just, we're just Christians trying to walk with God, failing, falling short. But we are striving. We are fighting because we believe that Jesus Christ has done something amazing for us. As Sandy used to say, you think about that. Amen. Elders, if you would, uh, actually, I have to uh, see Benji.